You are listening to Secret Handshake, the podcast covering the movies that help you identify your friends and maybe make a few more along the way. Coming up, another Halloween season bonus episode covering David Gordon Green's Halloween trilogy, featuring Michael Myers, Laurie Strode, two shitty podcasters, Trauma, Dr. Satan, that guy from Armageddon, Judy Greer, Big John, Little John, Julian, Band Bullies, Choking, Stabbing, Head Smashing, Impalements, Crucifixion, Maga Tommy Doyle, and Teen Heartthrob, Corey Cunningham. Martin. Yes. Evil dies tonight! of Secret Handshake. I'm your host, Jacob Knight, and joining me as always is Martin Carlson. Martin, are you sad that there's no more Halloweens after this? Like, not movies, the holiday. They've officially, they've, like, canceled it completely. Yeah, I heard because, like, technically it's owned by... It's owned... Apple. By by Apple and by Universal. And now they're, you know, the movies are over. It's just done. Yeah. Apple also is being a real piece of shit this year, and they're not even airing... Uh, Great Pumpkin Charlie Brown on on network anymore because like you can only watch on Apple Plus the first time in like 40, 50 years. Oh, is it just on Apple Plus? Yep. For some reason, I thought it was on Paramount. But nope. this is how it's it's so tough to keep any of this streaming bullshit like safe. I was just gonna go into a whole joke about how Halloween was canceled because that's the future the libtards want. <laughs> but you took it in a totally different like I ruined high minded direction. <laughs> But we're here, if you haven't guessed yet, to talk about David Gordon Green's Halloween trilogy because Halloween Ends just dropped in theaters and on Peacock, and that's going to have its own section because that has proven to be quite the controversial installment, yeah. would we say? Which is uh, which is really cool. Yeah. I, I like it. I like that there's actually a movie out there that's not just this like, meh. <laughs> I like that it's a movie that's divisive in a way that it's a two-way street almost entirely is that like people are either going directly to it with like open arms or they're completely running away from it um not like you know the zombie halloweens which when both were kind of released were almost universally for the most part hated you had like pockets of folks who tried to go to bat for Halloween. And then you had more, I think, for Halloween 2 initially, uh, just because of how bizarre and outlandish that film was. Mm -hmm. But, like, it was widely negative. 
um, to where Halloween ends seems to be like, oh shit, people are either like, I love it, or like, this raped my childhood, like Star Wars prequel style. Yeah. No, people are, they're really up in arms about it, and I don't want to get ahead of ourselves. But Incensed. It, it, yeah, it's, um, and it's one of those things too, where it's like, we'll get to our opinions, but like, I get both sides. I really, this is one of those movies where it's like, I'm not going to argue with people on that side. Like it's all about expectation. Right. And if you expect a certain thing and you're not getting it, I understand being pissed. Like I hated last Jedi when it first came out because I was like, don't fuck with the format. Like don't fuck with making a gray area. And this sort of is the last Jedi of Halloween movies to a certain degree. Like I hate that comparison because like every time like people talk about the last Jedi anymore, like it's the only movie they've ever watched and like the only (laughs) controversial like franchise installment of all time. Because I mean, maybe that's where we should start uh, with the Halloween franchise as a whole is that like, one of the great things about this franchise is how many times it's sort of changed form completely because you have the first two movies, which feel of a piece. You have Halloween from 1978, which I think we've both gone over on the podcast several times that this is almost like the impetus for both of us really loving movies. Period. Yeah, like it's like, the first That's not one. an exaggeration at all. Yeah, yeah. It, it's, it is the, the big bang moment in both of our lives where we're like, holy shit, what is this art form and how can I get more of it like pumped directly into my veins? And then Halloween 2, the Rick Rosenthal Halloween 2, is exactly like the tagline was literally more of the night that he came home. And it picks up, you know, directly after uh, Halloween ends. And like you love it. We've done a whole episode (laughs) on deal breakers about how like I prefer Rob Zombie's Halloween 2 to Rick Rosenthal's. But like... It fits completely, love it or hate it, as a piece with Halloween. Yes. Yeah, that, that's that first movement. Um, and then you get the, um, for you know, from a financial perspective, the misfire that was Halloween 3. Now, it, didn't, it wasn't even a flop. I was going to say, Halloween, that's the biggest like, kind of misconception right. about Halloween 3 Season of the Witch is that it just failed at the box office. It didn't. It just got such... Uh, you want to talk about like Star Wars, The Last Jedi, like it got that level of like response from the people who hated that movie. Only when it first came out, it had no champions. There was nobody being like, I love you, Ryan Johnson, Bukaki me like all night long. It was just like, I don't know if one guy can Bukaki a person, but you know what I'm going with with yeah. this. But it's like, uh, it was the first one to where people were just like, no, where's Michael Myers? What the fuck's going on with these masks? Stonehenge is involved. Mad scientists. Tom Atkins won't stop drinking and like having one night stands. I want nothing to do with this. And has since been reclaimed as kind of like top of the the franchise. Like it, it's a lot of people rank it in the top five, let's say. Yeah, it, it's funny because that was an era. And when studios didn't quite understand the power of IP, Right. They just didn't like now it's like they're much more savvy to a to a bad degree um, where it's like they're so careful and they're so like you, you can see everything done in the boardroom. I mean, again, you know, we talk about Force Awakens of this like you can just see the studio saying, no, we need to have every beat from New Hope and we're going to we're going to be as safe as possible. The same with Ghostbusters Afterlife, you know, these very safe, safe filmmaking. And you could see the thinking behind, um, you know, Carpenter and, and Tommy Lee Wallace of saying and Deborah Hill. 
oh, this is cool. Like, we can do an anthology thing, which also is super hot right now, too. Like, it would play a lot better today if it was like, oh, we're going to do this whole thing in the world of Halloween, but maybe much clearer about the expectation from the beginning. It would also be on, like, Shudder. Yeah, exactly. You know, and they, they know, like, where to package it and who the audience is, and... Um, and then you get to, you know, then you get to four, five, and six, which is the Thorn trilogy. Right. Um, and which I adore. Um, I really like four, five, and six because it shows the kind of flexibility of the series. Like I was, I was just watching six before you came over and I really like the, the producer's cut quite a bit. Um, I've been meaning to revisit it. I don't like it like at all. Mm-hmm. Um, I've tried because like Halloween six, uh, the Curse of Michael Myers was another big one kind of in my childhood is because it was like discovering Halloween when I was a little kid, tracking down the other movies on VHS, being completely befuddled by Halloween 3 because it had the greatest box. Oh, my God. Like ever. But you actually watch the movie even as a kid and you're like, where's the guy in the mask? And then 6 came along. I'd already seen 4 and 5 and it was like, oh – these are the Halloween type movies I remember. And also I had a crazy crush as like, you know, a 12 and 13 year old on Daniel Harris. We all did. And then, um, six comes along and it was rented by my buddy, Adam across the street. His big brother, Jason brought it home from West coast video when we were having a sleepover one night and we watched it and it was like, Oh, this is kind of like, you know, the, 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 the Jamie era, like Halloween movies, it has a little bit of the originals in there, but it just felt different. And then you kind of look at it sort of like how we, we talked about the, the Hellraiser franchise last week. That's the first dimension movie too. the, the yes. Weinsteins. So it's like, they kind of hack it up to meet their vision the same way that they hack up uh Hellraiser bloodline. And then. You know, even as a kid, you watch, like, I remember watching it and being like, there's something weird about this one. It just feels off. It feels like half a movie almost. And then that was one that people sought out for years and years and years once we found out about the producer's cut and everything. Like, I remember ordering a VHS tape of it on, like, eBay to see it for the first time. And it has since been restored and, frankly, reclaimed by folks like you and others online uh, as being kind of better than its initial reputation uh, that preceded it because of the restored Blu-ray and everything and like how it it makes it, I don't believe a totally different movie, but it at least fleshes it out to a degree to where it's coherent. Yeah, yeah. And and it's it's kind of just a cool like case study of, of studio interference of watching the original cut and watching the producer's cut because like you change the beginning significantly and the end significantly. The meat in the middle pretty much the same sure but you get it, it it's it just it makes a little bit more sense like the mythology makes a little more sense in in the final in the producer's cut well and that's what i was going to ask you is that since you're a bigger thorn cult fan than i am walk us through the thorn cult because this is the next major movement in the franchise as you pointed out like what's happening here because in halloween one you have the shape like, he's just this unstoppable force of evil that invades the suburbs. It's kind of the, one of the great things about the original Halloween is that it was first called the babysitter murders, you know? Mm-hmm. And that's... that simple. It's literally what's on paper. Guy comes to small town, you know, suburban America, starts murdering babysitters, applies subtext as you see fit. 
you know? Mm -hmm. And then you had all these people like Carol Clover and everything spinning out all of this kind of genre theory because of this movie. Halloween 2 uses, you know, it, it adds some mythos because you have Carpenter coming back as screenwriter and frankly doing some ghost directing on some reshoots and mm -hmm. stuff. And Deborah um, Hill helping writing again. And Deborah Hill helping write again. But it, it starts integrating the whole like Michael and Lori our siblings, which is also included, I believe, in the TV cut mm -hmm. of 78 Halloween. Yes. Which is one of the big things, too. Um, three doesn't care about any of that to the point to where, like, three I always found fascinating is you have Dan Chalice, drunk investigator, doctor for hire. Philanderer. Philanderer, <laughs> man of the people, one of the greatest horror movie protagonists ever committed to the screen. He's amazing. <laughs> but like he's he's in a bar at one point when he's investigating the, the Silver Shamrock stuff. And Halloween is playing in the background, which leads you to believe that like – that's almost it's almost like the Tarantino like grindhouse versus real world universes that he used yeah. to talk about in the early days of his filmography is that you go, okay, is Silver Shamrock and Halloween three, is this the real world? And like Halloween is a movie inside of that world? Is that our world? Or like what the fuck is happening here? Anyway, that's it's its like own light year where you're like, wait, so it's a movie within that the toy was based on, but they're still animated. It just like makes your head yeah. kind of kind of crack in half. Yeah, you lose <laughs> sight in one eye if you try to put any kind of real thought behind it. So that's its own thing out on an island. Four, five, and six start this whole Thorn Cult mythology, which rewrites even one and two, like the the mythos and the backstory to Michael Myers. Walk us through that because I've never fully gotten a grasp on it despite reading every fucking article on Bloody Disgusting, watching these movies, blah, blah, blah. I, my brain, for whatever stupid reason, can't put A to B to C on this. Okay, so, and I'm, compared to others, I'm still a neophyte with this stuff because I have, my friend Dan, um, who is like a thorn cult, like, master, we've had... He actually saw Halloween together, the 2018 one at Fantastic Fest. Had a long, like, three-hour conversation after at uh, Gibson Street across the across the street. Um, but so my understanding is that it, it gets a little bit messy. Um, but that that's putting it lightly. That especially with part four, she's being called to by this like this druid figure. Like it's already kind of, or she, you know, there's kind of evil there. It's calling to her. We don't really see it, um, but actually four, they don't even really talk about it. It's more like, no, straight up, like Michael, just like, it's not until the very, very end. It almost feels like they retcon four into it just through extension of five and six. Exactly. So five and six, is they, yeah, you're right. That's completely right. Five and six is really, five really introduces the Thorn Cult. So like four is just you have like. the man in black. Man in black who's coming to town. Um, You also are. In the, in the aftermath, then the kind of retconned it in part five is that she tried to kill her fucking foster mom, you know, at the end of four. And which to me, when I, I remember watching four for the first time and being like, okay, she's Lori's daughter, technically, so Michael's niece. So the whole idea there is that like evil is transferable. It's like, you yes. know, it might skip a generation, but eventually it's going to show up as soon as she puts on the clown mask. That's, that's reminiscent of that. The one that he had when he was a little kid and killed his sister. 
But they're like, no, 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 no. This is part of a grander scheme. Yeah, because then they get, then they get to so the end of part five. Um, she is kidnapped by the man in black and by the thorn cult. You don't get a lot more information in five about the thorn cult. They kind of like give some random shit here and there. You see the tattoo, I think on, on Michael's like wrist. Yeah. When she, when the, the scene where she, you know, unmasked when he starts to cry and it's fucking weird. Um, and then in six, well, and the man in black comes and like burns through the bars and like pulls him out of jail. If he, he goes Terminator. It's like the fucking yeah, Terminator. Exactly. He, like, he pulled, cause yeah, cause Michael's straight up arrested. It's weird. He's got like chains on and he's in a jail cell. The man in black comes in, frees him and takes Jamie part six opens. And again, before you go forward, sorry to keep interrupting, yeah. but as a kid, cause this was another sleepover installment for me as a child. I remember thinking at the end of five with my kid brain being like, Oh, it's Satan. Like the whole idea mm. is that ultimate, like Michael Myers is the ultimate evil. Satan's coming and collecting. Like I never cared about any thorn cult nonsense. It was just kind of like, okay, he's burning through the bars. He's taking him to hell. Yeah. Bada bing series over. Yeah. It's well, and yeah, you can come in out of context, even coming with context. It's like, so kind of poorly drawn right. out for the audience in terms of the mythology or consistent mythology, it kind of reminds me a lot of like Jason goes to hell where it's like out of nowhere, you get this like elaborate, like, you know, um, invasion of the body snatchers, body swapping the hidden narrative in a Friday 13th movie. And it's like this whole thing about the history of the Voorhees family. Like, what are you talking about? You know, and this one goes, so six is only through a Voorhees born. May he be born again. <laughs> It's such nonsense. I like Jason. I, I do a lot. too. We've covered this on our other Friday the Thirteenth episode, but yeah, it's that movie is complete and utter gobbledygook. Is it? But but and we'll get. So I think that's gonna be a theme of this episode. Is that like maybe with some franchises, that's the only way you can keep it interesting, and that's why I like the Thorn trilogy is because it goes to batshit territory. And we are now living in a time of like, again, like super careful IP filmmaking from the biggest Marvel shit to the smallest horror franchises where everyone's like really scared of pissing off the fucking fans, pissing off these like, you know, online trolls. And so it's like, hey, how do we be as careful as possible? Like you watch the Thorn trilogy, you're like, wait, they didn't give a shit, especially with five and six. Right. Right. And six is like six is the most like, I don't give a fuck. It's, it's, it's really bonkers and, but you can tell they're really they were That's when they really tried to build up the mythology. Like that's the one that actually gives you the most. And so my understanding is because it has and, that whole prologue and everything too. Well, cause yeah, cause basically under, under Smith's Grove, under the insane asylum from the Halloween series, you know, is where, you know, where Loomis worked is those people are now running a cult in the basement, like in the, the, the dungeons of this old insane asylum, actually an active insane asylum where they are doing, um, druid, it's their druids full on like druid practices. And they are going to, I believe they, you get a flashback is that Jamie has sex with Michael. So it's full on like house of the dragon action. Like Michael has sex with his niece. Who's now like a 20 year old. Um, they somehow there's a weird time jump. It doesn't make any sense. Cause she's like 12 in, um, let's not get any math into it. Yeah, exactly. It's very George R. R. Martin of, you know, Daenerys. And so, uh, she ends up having Michael's baby, which and, implies that Michael can nut. 
Yes, and I think Michael, I think the idea is Michael's going, they're going to pass on his power to that next child. But they also, in one of the cuts, talk about this whole idea is like, Michael can't be at full power until he kills his entire family. And it's this whole thing, they're trying to explain why he always wanted to kill Lori, why he wanted to kill his niece and kill everyone, is that... Which Halloween kills flirts with, too, the whole idea of like, oh, with every person he kills, he gets stronger. Yeah. And then it it kind of abandons that whole through line as we get into ends. But we'll get there. We'll get there eventually. Yeah. And they, and they, four hour podcast. And they start, but they start to play with that in the new series, too. And you can, you can tell that that green and McBride are fans of the Thorn trilogy. There's a lot of like, they like that deeper mythology. Well, that's one of the things I want to get to as we talk about these movies. And that's why I wanted to start with the movements that existed inside of the franchise itself is because one of the big talking points about, uh, Halloween 2018, when it first came out is that this is a direct sequel to, to one, like it completely even like forgets that Halloween two exists. Yep. And I disagree. I think there's some used car salesmanship sort of going on is that it's not so much about how it ignores them, but this, their movies, their trilogy as a whole almost metabolizes the previous sequels and then reimagines them as part of their own kind of franchise lore, if that makes any sense. No, I'm, I've been, we've been thinking this separately and I have the exact same thought. Like for real, I was like, oh, this is like we talked before about jazz. This is taking the same elements and, and kind of moving them around on the table and mixing them up and doing, but with through their own, through their own prism, their own lens, um, especially McBride and, and, and David Gordon green. Um, but, but let's quick, let's quick finish up our, our run through. Yeah. Of the, keep going to six. I'm sorry to keep, no, 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 it's cool. Um, but six, basically they also, it's confused because, um, you have this kid, Danny, who's living in the Strode house. Like his, his grandpa bought the Strode house, lied to the whole family that this was a, you know, side of a murder. They're all living there. They're not Strodes. They're not related to the Strodes. They're not related to Michael Myers and the Myers in any way. They just live there. And the, the worst kid, husband and father of all time. Dude, he's horrible. And it's, it's fucking, what's her name? Haley, um, not Haley, but the, the um, from True Grit, the original True Grit is the mom. Oh, I didn't realize that. Yeah. Um, and so it's this more like, again, it feels very, Six really feels like Jason goes to hell because it's this whole new family with a lot of backstory in this house. And there's just this like this new mythology that is not connected whatsoever to the rest of the films besides the Thorn stuff. But then you start to, um, they start to kind of lay in these ideas of, well, Michael heard voices when he was young too. And it was the man in black talking to him, basically tempting him to be a killer. And then you get this kid, Danny, who is now being whispered to, and it's like, he's going to be the next generation killer, which ties into four, which ties into five, which ties into another film. We'll talk, we'll talk about today as well. Which also includes Paul Rudd playing Tommy, like Wallace and much more handsome across the street. Tommy Doyle. Oh, Tommy Doyle. I'm sorry. Um, across the street watching all of this happen and basically recording it in like a real, like he's almost like this cross between like Jimmy Stewart from rear window and like a QAnon, like conspiracy theorist. Like he, one of the weirdest 
fucking performances of all time. And the fact that it comes from Paul, everybody loves you. Rudd is insane. He, yeah, because it's it's like I think they shot it in '95, so we're talking 27 fucking years ago. And he's well, like, this is like yeah. when he was doing like what Power Glove commercials or what, or was it Game Boy that he was in the commercial for Super Nintendo? It was, was one of the uh, Nintendo products. I think it was Super Nintendo because then, yeah. then pretty soon after he was on Friends is when he was Stevie's boyfriend, right? right? Um, and then he did like uh, um, Object of My Affection. With, yeah, the which, Neil LeBute one. With uh, Jennifer Aniston. Oh, um, no, that's not it. Yeah, that's a different one. Because then he's in... What's the the movie where he's in the Neil LeBute play at, that ended oh, up being directed? The Shape of you? Shape of Things. Shape the of Shape things. of Things. Yeah. yeah, with him and Rachel Weisz. Quite the fucking movie. We did that We did that play at my college. Yeah, love, um, love, love that movie. It's a, it's a great, it's a great, amazing play. Um, but no, so you, you finish out six and it's like a complete like... Even with the producer's cut, like I don't think got enough footage. Like um, you see L- Loomis die off screen because he he passed away. I think while they're right when they were ending filming, I believe that sounds right. Because he definitely died before it came out. Because it's dedicated to him. Yes. Too. Um, and then the next movement we get to uh, a two a twofer. So we get H two O and Resurrection. Um, so uh, uh, 90, I have controversial opinions on this. Ninety eight and O two, um, and. We were texting. I was rewatching H two O because I I thought, um, you know, he said there are these movements, but there's also like we've seen Laurie bit brought back before for an anniversary film, twenty year, forty year, done in a very different fashion. I mean, let's talk about H two O really quick. So H two O is like it's Halloween for the Scream generation. It's full on Weinstein. This is now they figured out what they think. They have the the model for the new slasher with Scream. They try it, to do it again with the CW kind of actors. It's sort of ingenious. Yeah. Like as just a pure marketing ploy. Yes. Because it's like we bring back Jamie Lee as Laurie Strode. She's living in hiding as like the count, not the counselor, the, the headmistress. Headmistress of like a prestigious prep school in Northern California, mm-hmm. yep. I want to say. Um, yeah, we do it in the mold. We, we get this guy, Kevin Williamson, who, uh, had just delivered, you know, one of the, the defining horror films of any generation with Scream and Wes Craven. We get him to come in and do like an uncredited polish on the script. That's right. Because had a lot he, of script problems. He originally had the first pitch. If I remember the, the way this went is that he had a treatment that was turned in and then they... They had a bunch of scripts. It went through a bunch of transmutations through different writers. And then he was brought in to kind of like polish it out. That's sort of my problem with the movie as a whole is that like this is when Halloween enters James Bond territory. If you'll stick with me in like a logical fashion to where like we've had these discussions off mic. And I don't know if we've ever brought up this theory on mic. We may have once or twice. But the way that I was always taught to appreciate Bond movies is that you watch them as almost like a map to popular culture. Yes. At what the was time. happening then? What that, was yeah. happening in cinema? What was happening in culture? Where there were like the 60s ones in Connery or like the swinging 60s and everything. Who we were at war with in real life? Who were at war with in real life with the with, uh, Cold War paranoia. And then you get into the 70s with like stuff like Live and Let Die is like the black exploitation movie. Then you get into the 80s with stuff like. Um, 
view to a kill is a, a perfect example of like we have walk-in we have duran duran doing the fucking theme song we have grace jones in here then you get into the 90s with the brosnan ones which feel distinctly like 90s action movies at the time then you get into the craig movies that are well i mean the dalton movies are like the post-canon like 80s action movie license to kill in particular mm-hmm. and then you get uh into the the craig era or the, the, the Brosnan era before the Craig era, the Brosnan era feels like the nineties action movies of the time. GoldenEye is like one of the great nineties action movies. And like, if you were to show somebody a textbook of like what action in the nineties kind of looked like, like GoldenEye would kind of be a good starting point. You yeah. know, then you get the born kind of the born and you get the born ones and that, well, the born one is, uh, um, quantum of solace. Yeah, exactly. Quantum of solace because you have the Craig era really chases the trends at the time. The Dark Knight, Born, all of that, and then bringing it all the way back to uh, the latest one, No Time to Die, to where like literally 007 dies, and it's like we try to put a period at the end of the sentence, which Halloween Ends even does. It almost feels like as a generation right now, we're kind of obsessed with finality. Yeah, Rise of Skywalker just now. Yeah, yeah. Rise of Skywalker. Like it's almost like how do we. to steal from again last jedi how do we basically discard the past and like just look to the future look to new icons and everything and like it's difficult because a lot of people don't want to do that but that's what halloween is doing halloween with h2o is like here's the scream one the CW is huge at the time with Dawson's Creek and everything. You have Michelle Williams in the fucking movie. You have Josh Hartnett, who is this a year before the faculty or is this yes, after? Before. Okay. This is, he's introduced in this. Yeah, it's, so it's right as the ri- mm-hmm. the rise of him. It's really the rise of like Weinstein and Dimension Pictures really being like a, a formidable force in the industry because I feel like before Scream, they were there always been like a B movie house, let's say, but like before scream, you had like the prophecy and movies children of like the corn, that. Movies. children of the corn movies. Like it was this mix between like, ah, uh, movies that would do like mid tier business, like genre wise at the box office that they got into theaters or they were like DTV, like shelf stuffers. And then you had, cause one of their big things was buying up like IP and kind of moving into that territory. And then you had scream, which was almost like, Oh shit, this is a massive hit. This changed the whole tide of like how horror movies were going. How do we replicate that with Halloween, which is Halloween H2O? And you have all these stars in this movie, or all these would be stars in the movie, and Jamie Lee coming back for the first time playing Laurie Strode. And for me, it doesn't work. I loved it when I saw it on opening day. In the theaters as a teenager, I saw it. I've shared this story too. I've I've saw Scream on opening day. I saw this movie on opening day. I saw every fucking. I saw Lake Placid on opening day. Every fucking movie that was a horror film, like I was there at the uh, Regal, like in the mall, like ready to go. And I love this movie. As it's aged, I've realized that the things that date it as being part of that movement of horror cinema are the things that actually kind of wound it in my mind or, or, or uh, hamstring it a little bit because I just don't, it feels like half a film to me now. Yeah. Rewatching it. Cause I texted you when I was watching it and I've watched it quite a bit 
Me too. Um, and that's not to like, but I've, I've watched it quite a bit recently, you know? And, but this time I think I was like, you, you had said, oh, I don't like it very much. And I was kind of looking at it with, with I guess, some new eyes. And I will agree that like, it, first of all, takes forever to get going. There's like, no one dies. It's like, what, three or four deaths in like the it's whole. It's a C. Di- it feels like the pilot for like a Laurie Strode like Gossip Girl or like Dawson's Creek or whatever style series. Yeah, when well, the setup is so is so weird too. Of like, because I, I I read an interview or I saw an interview with the 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 credited screenwriter who like came up with this actual idea, right? And it felt very like haphazard, where he was just like, "Oh, let's just do this," because there's just there doesn't seem to be a good reason besides the fact that maybe they had a cheap access to a school in like the hills of Northern California, which I know that like the Weinsteins were, were penny pinchers too. And they're like, Oh cool. Like how can we get the most for our bang for our buck? We'll set a Halloween movie there. And it's really fucking weird. Now she's, I like her a lot in it. I also like to compare the, I, the vision of, of how people dealt with trauma then versus like trauma now in horror filmmaking, where it's like, you know, with the 2018 film, it's like, she's fucking Sarah Connor. You know, with that one, it's like the classic 90s, like, mom who's not dealing with her shit. It's like white wine and pills, you know, and... And Adam Arkin. And Adam Arkin's, he's really great in it, very charming, you know, and... But the deaths start, like, way too late. There are some good sequences. I think there's a... I really love the... um, there's a lot of cool, like, kind of use of the kind of almost gothic-y architecture of the, of the school. The stuff, I remember being kind of cool in it. I haven't very, watched very it good. in a couple years, but, like, it also runs barely 80 minutes. It's a short one. Um, and like you said, it does feel like kind of half a movie, and it jumps to the end. Um, we also have uh, forgotten to mention the LL Cool J of it all. Well, that's the thing is it feels, like you were saying, like, you want to talk about a film of the times of, like, Let's jam pack in these young hot stars, which was, you know, any film, but definitely, definitely Dimension, definitely Miramax. And then like LL Cool J would show up in a lot of genre films at that time. Yeah, because you're a year before Deep Blue Sea. He's even making movies that Dimension put out like In Too Deep, that, which is a pretty yeah. fucking good gangster film, too. So like this was like LL Cool J was one of the... I don't want to say pioneers because obviously there were rappers who acted before him, like Ice T and everything, and Tupac. But like, he was the Ice guy. Ice Cube, at this point, yeah. Ice Cube too, exactly. And Boys in the Hood. But it's like he was the guy of this era trying to break into acting next, and like, he does a pretty good job of it. Like, I like LL Cool J on screen. Me too. I like him, and he's got a whole funny side plot of like he's writing erotic fiction, right? Like while he's this like security guard at this like posh school and. And he's very natural and funny. Um, this was also the time, too, when the franchise was bringing the original directors back to make it. Because this is Steve Miner, who made this and then Lake Placid. Yep. And then Rosenthal makes Halloween Resurrection next. Yeah, because he, yeah, he didn't Miner from all the Friday 13th stuff. That's what I mean. He, yeah. yeah, I mean, he's the guy. And then, yeah, he said, like, Rosenthal for Resurrection. and I should say original directors uh, of Slasher movies, okay, not yeah. the franchise. And, but it was, like, these old-timey guys who, like, hadn't really worked. Although I believe Miner was because he worked on Dawson's Creek a whole bunch, too. I think too. he did, yeah. yeah. He, he worked a lot. He did a lot he of TV. He was a big TV, yeah. And but he was just kind of an old workhorse, you know. And then Rosenthal was obviously like, "Oh, you directed Halloween too. Let's bring you back." And Resurrection is 
Resurrection was another, you know, but another, another film, rapper, another rapper, but another film, like you said, a mirror of the times, you know, of like they were looking at reality TV, found they were, footage, they were, they were found footage, reality TV. They were looking at scare shows like Fear Factor, which was super hot right then, right? Well, you know, and your post Blair Witch Project yep. too. So it's like they're trying to figure out like the whole dangertainment thing is like this hybrid of reality TV and Blair Witch to where it's like, how do we make reality TV spooky? And it's, I guess have Buster Rhymes host it. Like that movie is a disaster. I enjoy it. Oh a yeah. A lot. Um, but it also has super short, super short. Um, but also weird because it had in H2O, it's part again as like a two movie movement because she beheads Michael at the end of, of H2O. And then at the beginning of resurrection, we find out that he was one of the paramedics that the, Michael put the mask on and, and, and tied his ma- tied his face and uh, then uh, it's a uh, lip, uh, taped over his, his mouth. It's way too elaborate for anything that Michael Myers would ever do in the past. But then she beheads this paramedic, Myers is still alive. And then Jamie Lee, Laurie Strode dies in the beginning of resurrection. So like she goes to, yeah, she goes to insane asylum because like, Oh, you killed a guy. Yeah. yeah, And he drops her off the fucking roof of it. Is it, it's Smith's Grove, right? I think so. Cause she, he stabs her. He stabs her like in the, the back, like in this weird awkward things holding her and he stabs her and then drops her like, and she's just dead. It's the best part of the movie. Yeah. You know, like, Outside of Buster Rhymes screaming trick or treat motherfucker and then karate kicking Michael Myers in the face. This happens in the film. Um, but yeah, the the opening of Resurrection, again, I remember seeing in the theater and being like, oh, maybe this movie will be actually good. Wrong. There, you know, I think back though on this series and before we get to the newer trilogy, the, the Dave Gordon Green trilogy. Well, we haven't even gotten to the zombie films yet. Oh, sorry. I just completely just blanked them from my mind. How dare you? Um, but then we have this, then we have, you know, another very deliberately picking zombie as what the style was where, yes, he was, you know, becoming a very popular horror filmmaker. Um, but also I put him in league with the idea of, the Platinum Dunes remakes of like of the the, the look, the kind of grindhousey seventies aesthetic, and putting that on top of the Halloween story. Do you know what I'm talking about? I'll push back a little bit here because the one thing I'll say about Zombie is that where the Platinum Dunes movies were mostly directed by Marcus Nispel and yeah. other '90s music video directors and stuff, they had a very slick glossy look that were almost producer driven, mm-hmm. even though they brought these guys in, they brought them in to look like a, a specific way <laughs> to look like, yeah, Michael Bay production zombie was hired almost out of like a fit of inexplicable autourism to where it's like, let this guy do a thing with Halloween. That might be cool. And to be fair, we get two Rob zombie movies. We've gone over this at length with our Deal Breakers episode on Halloween 2. I think is a great masterpiece. Uh, Arguably top three Halloween film of all time. Uh, Halloween, his first remake, is an atrocity that we shouldn't speak about. Uh, But they're they're of a piece again. They're, They're two movies in a movement 
that have a beginning, a middle, and an end, and like he obviously had a vision for. Yeah, and we'll we'll get to this with the the Green trilogy, but you see a filmmaker, which he technically is. Um, you, I'm sorry, what'd you say? <laughs> you have the the first movie, which is partly messy because you were talking off mic of him doing a Rob Zombie thing and then literally doing a remake of the original for the last like 30 minutes. Like yeah. it just jammed. Right? Oh, so we it, talked about this on the deal breakers one is that yeah. it's one of the biggest things is that like the, the first part of that movie I don't like, but I admire because it's still zombie being like, okay, what if Meyer, we went through the whole like Henry portrait of a serial killer bullshit with Michael Myers, where he's a fucked up kid. He tortures animals yada 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 whatever he's no different from james gum and then he all of a sudden it was like the light went off in his head while writing where he's like ah fuck that's right i gotta remake halloween and then he just jams all all of it into like 45 minutes and it's just it's terrible because it seems he doesn't seem interested in that part of the movie he wants to make the first one and i think that's what halloween 2 that's why i respond to it so so deeply is because it's like oh we got all that bullshit out of the way now i can make my halloween movie and it's so fucking weird well and that's i mean that's what i was getting at is definitely that is that you know when he doesn't he's not held in by the constraints of i'm remaking halloween it's like no i'm doing a sequel i can do what i want it reminds me a lot of batman returns where you have like the first batman was like very controlled by like by peters and by that whole production company like really kind of like corralling tim burton in of like yeah you get Tim Burton style, but like you're making a Batman movie and it's still a really dark movie, but then Batman returns is a Burton movie with yeah. all, with all warts and all and no and, prints and no, and, and, and a lot of people, a lot of like people didn't like it when it first came out for that very reason. It's like, Oh wait, wait, wait. I saw, I just want a Batman movie. Like I didn't want this much Burton and the producers kind of freaked out. Yeah. You know, what's like, with all this psychosexual shit. Oh my God. I mean, it's like absolutely bonkers, you know? And I, I love Batman returns by the way. It's but, amazing. It's great, but you see it again. It's a very similar thing, and then I think we're going to see that we see that with the Gordon trilogy as well. Uh, sorry, the Green trilogy as well. Just like you know, when he got to when they got to kind of make their thing that they wanted to make, you can tell like where one thing ended and one began. It's like a very clear. <laughs> yeah, because and let's just get into it with Halloween twenty eighteen, um, because that's a great jumping off point to where twenty eighteen feels like. They reboot the character, they being uh, David Gordon Green and Danny McBride primarily because McBride, in the weirdest twist of fate, is one of the the co-writers on it. But they remake Halloween in their image. And it is distinctly a David Gordon Green production because the one thing we haven't touched on yet is the iterations of Haddonfield and how Haddonfield changes, particularly... In, you know, the first two Carpenter films, like it's the epitome of white picket fence, almost blue velvet, like suburbs, yeah. you know, that evil is invading. That's the whole subtext that everybody's talked about with those movies for years and years and years, ever since they come out. It's about evil invading the safest spaces that we envision in our heads as civilized, you know, America or evil or evil coming from those spaces. Exactly. Yeah, or, yeah. Or, yeah exactly. Like seeping up through the fo- floorboards and everything. Three doesn't even take place in fucking Haddonfield and just throws that out entirely. Four and five feels sort of like 
the Haddonfield that we're familiar with, but it adds new wrinkles to it, particularly like there's all the mob stuff from four mm-hmm. to where it's like this working class blue collar, like, like silver bullet dude. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Which I think that uh, green and McBride bring back, especially in Halloween kills. Oh yeah. Five feels like almost like if you filtered Haddonfield through twin peaks a little bit, like mm-hmm. it's vaguely Canadian. It has Canadian like, filmmaker. <laughs> yeah. The one kid in that is like a Bobby, like stand in from Twin Peaks. Like it's it's really fucking weird. Even the score kind of sounds like Angelo Bottolamenti at times. Um, but again, it's sort of like it just it's out there. It's doing something like super strange with Haddonfield. And then Haddonfield's not even a character in H2O because it takes place at the uh, you know prep school. Curse of Michael Myers, it's there, but it's sort of like a generic American suburb. Like, And it's more in the house. Like, most of it takes place yeah, just in the house. It's so. not really a character in that one. And then um, the Dangertainment, Buster Rhymes one, don't really hit on it that much. It's not until Zombies movies that, like, you get this totally new version of Haddonfield to where it's, like, the suburbs, but there's white trash who live on the fringes mom's a stripper uh there's bars like in halloween too like these grungy dive bars where dudes hang out with like again go-go dancers and shit there's coffee houses that Lori and all of her weird goth girl friends yeah, it's like, like salem yeah yeah it feels way more like new england i'm glad that you brought that up to where like the original Haddonfield's supposed to be Midwestern in Illinois. But it's just the valley. Yeah, it's just, <laughs> exactly. The valley dressed up to look like middle America. And then Zombies, uh, Halloween and his Haddonfield feel like New England. Feel like this grungy version of like... They were, they were Atlanta. Which is strange from a guy. Yeah, you shoot it in Atlanta and he's from Texas. Yeah. So it doesn't make much sense. Now, Martin... How would you describe the Haddonfield from David Gordon Green's trilogy? It feels, I mean, like a David Gordon Green world. Um, he, I think of like, you mentioned that we were talking about the latest film at like Snow Angels, like that kind of a dreary, like dead end middle class, but like modern middle class where the middle class is shrinking. Mm-hmm. So it's not as decrepit as like Rob Zombie's version of like more like everybody seems to be white trash, you know, um, and from a trailer park. And this seems more like, no, there's some rust at the edges. Like um, it feels, I mean, as a town, it doesn't feel like a particular part of the country, um, but it feels like almost like an industrial town too, or like near one, like a city to be almost like a suburb of like Detroit or Pittsburgh or Pittsburgh. You know what I'm saying? Like that kind of, you like, know what it feels like by ends to me is castle rock. Well, it definitely goes there. Yeah. Heart or dairy by the, yeah, exactly. Dairy, Maine, castle rock. Like that's the closest in my mind. I don't think you get as much of that in Halloween 2018 no. because it's, it is really a place setter movie to where it's like, here's Smith's Grove. Here's these podcasters investigating Michael Myers. Here's Jamie Lee Curtis existing as, as Laurie Strode, like in this cabin. 
on the edge of like uh, Haddonfield. And then you get to Haddonfield itself, which is sort of like this idealized suburb, but it feels more real. It feels more tangible, textured. Yeah. Like you could imagine people actually living in it. And I think that's key because what we realize through three movies um, is that their trilogy is more about Haddonfield than it is about Michael and Lori. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know if I made this up in my mind, but I remember hearing either a version of a line in, in Halloween Kills where it's like, maybe I just, maybe they do say it, but it's like when Michael Myers was staring out his window, he wasn't looking at people, he was looking at Haddonfield. Like, that was always his plan, was like, that was the enemy, that's what it was, he was going to infect with his evil. Um, even if I didn't hear that, that's just what they're going for. You well, know? it's the literalization of the subtext that everybody's talked about with Since, Halloween yeah. for years and years and years is that, it, again, it's about the infection of the places that we believe to be safe ever since, you know, white flight and everything in the 50s and the the Don Draper years in the 60s and how, like, the idealized suburbs, they weren't safe. Like, they could just as easily be as invaded and infected by evil as any other, you know, part of society. Yeah. You know, and they just bring that to the surface or the forefront as the text of the Halloween trilogy, the David Gordon Green trilogy. I've come to start to to refer to it as the How We Live Now Halloween trilogy because <laughs> it is like the big thing that I want to talk about with 2018 is how like this movie was sold to us as the Me Too Halloween. This mm. was the post Weinstein, despite Miramax's logo being on all three of these movies because of all the rights entanglements. You know, like this was the post Weinstein, the post Me Too feminist quote unquote Halloween. And that's what about people trauma. about trauma, about the, the, you know, again, if we're using these series kind of like the James Bond of the horror world of like tracking where movies go and where pop culture goes, like this is very much in the post elevated horror. Yeah. Every movie has to be about something where subtext is text. It's all about trauma. It's all about grief. It's all about us getting over the things that like the sins hang, of the father, the sins of the father, the sins of the patriarchy, yada, yada, yada. And like, I remember cause I was, when I worked at birth movies, death, you know, being the guy who was on the Halloween beat and like I went to Comic-Con and I went to uh, a round table with Jason Blum, David Gordon Green. I sat next to David Gordon Green during this while Jamie Lee Curtis did this. And Jamie Lee Curtis was there and Jamie Lee Curtis basically laid all of this out. This is about a survivor. This is about a woman taking back the power that's hers. This is about this. This is about that. And you watch it and you go, that's sort of in this movie for 10 minutes, but then it's also like five other movies because as we kind of noted before, you feel like the studio notes shining through on this of like, and this is the closest to like zombies first Halloween to where it's almost like, okay, get this out of the way. And then we can make the movies we actually want to make. And frankly, since it makes almost $300 million worldwide, then you know, David Gordon Green and Danny McBride are kind of given the keys to the Haddonfield kingdom and allowed to make the two movies they make after this because, like, this is, like, 
I, four, five different movies in one. It's it's too much. Um, it also because you get fifteen minutes of Lori trauma. She's an alcoholic. She lost custody. She's got a daughter who's played by Judy Greer. She has a granddaughter, Andy Matichak, yeah. who's allowed who admires her more or less from like a distance. But she's like an alcoholic, and then Myers is being transferred on Halloween night, dun-dun-dun, and she, instead of going to the celebration dinner for uh, her granddaughter being inducted into the National Honor Society, she goes- Which is not a big deal. I was in the National Honor Society. Me too. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. To where she drinks and clutches a revolver while watching Michael get on a bus and then shows up at the dinner like super drunk and late. And then the movie starts. Like it's just like all the trauma and Me Too stuff is literally almost like bookends for the film because you have the beginning and then you have the end with all of the like- weird Alex like she's almost do you think Laurie Strode listens to Alex Jones that's my next like question here like she's at least on Reddit well and and that's what's like weird about like modern films that deal with like conspiracy theorist people is they're not charming anymore I think back at like you know uh uh Mel Gibson's conspiracy theory like that like good that, ass movie it is but that was cute back then that's no longer cute you know, that's the guy who shoots up a mall yeah. You know, that's a QAnon voter where it's yeah. like, oh, these people are scary. And it's not the era of the X-Files where it's like, oh, it's cool to like kind of pretend there's like shit going on against the government. Now it's like, no, you guys really believe that there's like a cabal of like people drinking baby's blood. This is dangerous. And so it's like. Well, it's I, even like when in like Twin Peaks, the return brings it back and Lynch is smart enough to be like, where would all these characters be now? And Russ Tamblin's is like this insane. Yeah. Uh, all his shovel shit of his like, well, selling gold shovels and like doing basically a, a recorded like Alex Jones style podcast from his bunker. Like there's a very little difference between him and Laurie Strode. In yeah. This movie. Yeah, but I would agree. I mean, like, you have also, like, the Dr. Sartan stuff, which is really bookended into the... Just kind of shoved into the movie, because it's, like, out of nowhere... He's he, the new Loomis. He's the new Loomis, but then he becomes... Like, I don't, you barely spend any time with him at all. And then all of a sudden, he's like, oh, I've respected Michael, and I actually, like, am the one who's bringing him out. Like, I like I want to be him. He wears the mask. I think it's fucking stupid. Um, well, it feels like the first nod towards the Thorn cult. In a way, but it, but it, yeah, but it doesn't, it doesn't really mesh at all. Again, it's all over the place. And I think no, it's half assed as fuck. I'm just saying, like, yeah. it's the first time where you actually see the sequels really kind of shining through. Cause that, again, that's the other talking point is that it's like we forgot, we, we just totally neglect, not even forget, we, we neglect the sequels, we cut them all out, and we're a direct sequel to one. Not really. That's, the biggest, that's my, when I first saw this, cause I was at fantastic fest that night when I met Jamie Lee was, you know, that was wonderful. And so I was on that high when I walked into the movie, like, wow, what a magical evening. I met like fucking the, the final girl. And I was like, I was like, wow, I was carried away by the movie. Then the next day I just kind of soured with me more and more. And well, did you stay for the Q and a, I did because like there was a moment during the Q and a and I, wish it was recorded or I remembered the question that was asked because this was one of the biggest moments of like disillusionment on my part because uh, I was still like a full-time like movie journalist and everything and like how I'd gone from seeing this at, at 
Comic-Con and then seeing the movie's premiere at Fantastic Fest. And, like, she was asked a question more or less about, like, hey, this was sold as, like, the Me Too movie, blah, blah, blah. But, like, uh, like, did you think about this? And she regurgitated a talking point that she did verbatim. And it almost, with, with you from Comic-Con? Yeah, with Comic-Con, to where it more or less completely ignored the question being asked. It was like watching a politician uh, yeah. at a debate just sidestep it entirely to get to their actual agenda, like what the movie was being sold as. And I remember that was the point I got up and I walked out because I was like, oh shit, that's not the movie. Because I, I didn't dislike Halloween 2018, but I remember seeing it at that premiere and being vaguely underwhelmed. I've watched this movie upwards of 10 times now trying to convince myself that it's good and we can get to this as we get to the end and have watched all and talked about all three. But at best, Halloween 2018 is three stars because it's such a jagged mess of producers notes because like you get the Me Too stuff in the beginning and then it transitions into Haddonfield. Like Haddonfield, in hindsight, was their main objective of making it the the main character because you get Karen, who's Judy Greer, her daughter. You get Toby Huss, who's the husband. You get uh, Allison, Andy Matichak's, uh character, who's her granddaughter, and she's the real new like yeah. Lori in this. And then you get her and her friends. Tim Robbins' kid is mm-hmm. like one of the friends yep. in Miles, it. Miles, yeah, yeah, and. Um, then it becomes the babysitter murders 2018 where, for a like, little bit for a little bit where her best friend is uh, babysitting the greatest character in the whole franchise, Julian, not whole franchise, but this trilogy, it, at least yes. this sassy black kid who feels beamed in from one of the rough house It's the most rough house pictures touch to the whole like first movie because he feels like a guy like straight out of eastbound and down yeah. or uh, righteous gemstones or something just yeah, this vice sassy black, or, yeah. vice principal yeah vice principal from maybe vice, the most yeah. but like he's just this shitty little black kid who's just funny as hell talking about cutting his nasty ass toenails and giving his babysitter sass for inviting her boyfriend over and smoking weed and I was like okay now we're cooking with gas here man like this is the rough house pictures like Halloween movie I kind of wanted like that voice shines through yeah that I think that's why I ended up so disliking 2018 is like you said I wanted that consistently throughout I also just want I would have loved to see a rough house pictures original slasher yeah. like with their sense of humor because like righteous gemstone season two is one of the best seasons of television i've ever seen it is perfect it is hilarious and smart and action-packed and, and it's great and i'm like it's consistent too it has a consistent tone and vision and it just fits in a world and so the whole time i watched 2018 i was like i'm not against this humor but like just go all the way with it and give me that yeah movie. let them make their movie yeah exactly and that's why it felt you know you were saying about it be five plots but it's also five tones shoved together into one movie and then another scene that where I thought the roughhouse humor stuck out like a sore thumb was when you first meet Toby Huss's character and he's setting the traps for the the um oh man I got it on my penis he got, I got peanut butter on my penis and it's like I roll my eyes at every time because it really comes out of nowhere like the tone until then is like a different movie. You know who Toby Huss reminds me the most of is John Hawks 
from Eastbound and Down. Like they're almost yeah. identical characters. Yeah, the, the kind of like likable, but a little bit nebbish, like not the Hus- le- good not husband, good hu- solid, but like not the leading man of this movie at all. Um, it's not going to really like be a catalyst for change. Um, well, and that's the thing too. I think we were talking about like ignoring two through resurrections, right? And ignore specifically ignoring the fact that she's his sister, right? That big, really important part of like that's not part of it at all. Two, four, five, six, seven, eight. Because even four, five, six, you know, four, five, six. That's her. That's her daughter. Is you know, is Jamie. So it's like still part of like the idea. This is family, right? You know, it's like the fucking Fast and the Furious. It's about family, and this is that's the one of the biggest problems. Is they want to have their cake and eat it too. Specifically with the first one in twenty eighteen, is they say okay. She's not his, they even make joke about it. Oh, that was just someone made that up, that she's not his sister. And also, nothing happened after 1978. But they treat Michael like this evil Jason Voorhees level curse on the town. When they literally, when they say in Halloween Kills, they're like, 40 years ago, he killed four people. And you're like, I laughed out loud. Because I'm like, even the first one, Miles says... Dude, he killed four people 40 years ago. What's the big deal? Like, well, p- kids are shooting up schools. That's And that's the thing that I wanted to bring up, too, is that I remember I interviewed Danny McBride for the BMD Print Magazine for, for Halloween 2018. And one of the things that he talked to me about was being like, in 1978, a dude invading the suburbs with a knife, that was actually scary. You know, because you had the rise of serial killers and all, like all these things that were happening. Ted Bundy, yada, yada, yada. The Night Stalker. People, the Night Stalker. People couldn't actually conceive of that. This was a new uh, idea in American culture to where now in 2018, you literally have a school shooting every other week, it seems like. Yeah. So he's like a dude with a knife isn't scary to this generation of kids who have to go through fucking school shooter drills. You know, so it was addressing that idea of like, would kids these days even be scared of a Michael Myers type? And they do. It's again, it plays into my whole like how we live now kind of theory that they're trying to apply to this is that. And I think that's how they sort of try to retcon the sister stuff is that, again, Michael isn't like targeting her. He's targeting Haddonfield, and it's about the chaos that can invade our systems and our society that they continue to explore and are allowed to explore, both because of the success of the movie and also, frankly, because of the the looming pandemic that they shoot. They shoot two of these movies through or right before? During. During. Yeah. Okay, that's what I thought. They they had a bunch of, like— like halts and stuff. Right. That, I think that was originally supposed to dirt. come out like last year. And you can feel the politics of Trump and the pandemic oh, and everything yeah. infecting this. Especially again, kills. Yeah, especially kills. And we'll get to that pretty quickly. Um, is that in hindsight, 2018 is the one that feels the most out of place now. The one that when it came out, it was hard to criticize this movie because it became about, well, it's about women. Because again, it was the, it's the way that we talked about even with like Hellraiser where how you bulletproof your movie now as you do some kind of representational or uh, political sort of allegory that's kind of wedged into your movie to, so that it gives people an out that even if they don't like it, 
they can defend it in like a very soft defense. Oh, Hellraiser's so great for representation. Right, but the rest of the movie built around that isn't great. Right, right, right. But like you have to focus on like what a big moment it is to make Pinhead a trans person. It's like, I agree with that, but can the rest of the fucking movie be good too? Yeah. And like with this It's not a get an agile free card. This is kind of the blueprint for that to to a certain degree, because it's almost like, what if we promote this as the Me Too movie for literal months? leading up to its release to where like when it's, it's one of the great, I, I swear in my lifetime, maybe the greatest moment of PR bamboozlement that, that has ever been. I don't even know if bamboozlement is, is a real word, but like that anybody's ever pulled on both fans and horror, just critics in general is that it, they told us what the movie was. And then you watch people regurgitate that despite the text of the movie not really supporting that at all is that you're like yeah that's sort of in there all the me too stuff sort of in there but in the end because that was the thing is and there's a comment on i look back on my original 2018 review uh on letterbox is is somebody some dude came at me with like because my review was more or less like oh the thing that i realized that i kind of like about this is that like it's sort of a miracle that like all of these voices, despite all the studio nights like, notes, like Rough House shines through, the Blumhouse of it all shines through, the Jamie Lee sh- shines through. It's this stew that probably shouldn't work, but you still get all of these distinctive flavors out of it. And that's the thing I like the most. And some dude just wanders into the fucking comments of it. You know what I thought that was the most badass? At the end, three generations of strode women just throwing down the patriarchy and Michael Myers. And you're like... Dude. Wow, you just drank the Kool-Aid, yeah, brother. Yeah, like you're yeah, you're straight up Jim Jonesing this shit. Like that's not what the movie's about. Like that imagery's in there and that's what they are selling you on. But it's kind of half-assed by the time we get to Lori's whole like bizarre survivalist trap house. Yeah. What's well, the whole idea? It's like it's not it's not earned. You no. know, and that's a and that's a thing too of like that whole final third, which I believe was reshot. Yeah, a lot, feels a like it comes reshoot. like a different movie. Well, and we'll see that in ends as well. And they had a similar thing where it's like they were like, "Well, you want to see the showdown? You know, right. how do we get them there?" And and then you know, it gets into kills. They try to explain like why he came out there. It's like, well, it wasn't for Lori. The doctor took him out there. It's like, what? And it just, again, because like they shoot themselves in the foot by robbing themselves of mythology that's already there, especially for, for the 2018s. It's like, you don't have to say, you know, four, five, and six happen, but like, I think getting rid of the sister thing was a mistake. I do. Um, You're wrong on that, but okay. But I, I do think so. Live your um, life, live your truth. And I, but I do think that having it be a, I think getting rid of two in general was a mistake because it makes sense for him to Well, and the thing burned. is they don't get rid of it though. It, it's it, that half of fucking Halloween kills takes place in a hospital. Again, it's them metabolizing yeah. the, pre- the previous sequels and doing it their way. Do you want to just do kills now? Let's do it. We've been Let's leading not up hold to off. it. Yeah. Like kills. Okay. I hated this fucking movie, hated it to death when it first premiered. What is this? 2021. Last year, yeah, it, was, it was a year ago. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. We were still kind of coming off of lockdown. It's delayed in the theater, delayed, delayed, delayed. And then finally released in the simultaneous release of Peacock and 
theaters, yeah. which a lot of people had problems with. But this is, without a doubt, the post-Trump COVID Michael Myers Haddonfield movie that's all about our paranoia, the infection of like political ideas, mob mentality, cancel culture to a certain degree. Like they're trying to do it all. Again, it's the how we live now, middle installment, Empire Strikes Back of David Gordon Green's Halloween trilogy. And I fucking hated it upon first view. I, I was like, what are we doing here? Why does this feel like the penultimate episode in like a Halloween prestige series for HBO that like I missed the first six episodes yeah. of. Yeah. I, I walked out of that movie furious. Like I was <laughs> angry and I stayed up till like three in the morning watching it at home and was like, what are we doing? Well, I, yeah, I went opening, you know, was, you know, we're still kind of in, in lockdown, but I was vaccinated and I went with my same friends, um, Andrew and Nora that I saw the new one with. And I said, it's Friday fucking night. There's a new Halloween. Let's go. I heard it's terrible, but we're, and, and my friend Hunter had seen it at beyond fest. And this is right when theaters are opening up like for real pandemic like they're still doing like distance seating and everything but like yes this was one of the first big ones to bring theaters back yeah it was you're right you're right that's, that's totally true and i remember i remember hunter messaged me and he goes just saw halloween kills and i was like and he's like i like the ghost song in the tr- in the in the end credits and i was like oh. hunter's moon right uh, yeah and i love that song it's badass and i was like Oh no. He's like, yeah, dude. He's like, it's rough. And he was that, like Jamie Lee was there too. It was like, he was there the whole screening and he's like, it was a rough screening. Like no one liked it. Yeah. Cause he saw it at that revive beyond fest screening. Yes. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and he was like, it's rough. And so I went in, I'm like, all right, I'm going to, and then I had another friend who'd seen it and said, my friend Dan again, who's a big Halloween fan. who was like, focus on the kills. Let those take you through. They're, they're really brutal. And the I was, violence in this movie is legitimately awesome. Yeah, and, and, and ten times more violent, I think. Not ten times, but like five times more violent than the no, 2018. A lot more brutal kills. But again, it's sort of like doing the Halloween 2 to Carpenter's Halloween thing to where it's like, where the first one is this... I don't want to say artsy, but like, you spend 50 minutes of Halloween just in Haddonfield, hanging out in Haddonfield, seeing their kind of pedestrian everyday life. You watch Lori go to school. You catch up with chief bracket. You know, you're you're watching the girls like talk about their boyfriends on the phone and have no, like do the laundry and just look cute as hell, frankly, and and make popcorn and all this stuff. Like Nancy Lewis, Jesus Christ. Yeah. I mean, come on, man. But I mean, like, that's a big part of the movie to where like two is almost like a nonstop body count film. And again, you see them replicating that in their second movie with Halloween kills is that the, the body count in this movie is ludicrously high and the violence itself, like that fucking cutting board crucifixion where that girl, the, the, the black wife gets stabbed in the throat and then is forced to watch her white trash kind of husband get pinned to their cutting board and like crucified with several butcher's knives is like, that's like legitimately upsetting. And and for me, one of my favorite scenes and death scenes from the trilogy is the opening when he kills all the firemen. Oh my God. It's so fucking awesome. Bad. Okay. Sorry. The, 
the after the cold opening of the flashback, which I think is really fucking stupid. Um, it doesn't make any sense. It's it's so dumb because they try to add in this extra like backstory stuff that like okay, the chief was a was a kid and he stopped them from killing Michael. He should have let it happen. So it's like. Wait, so is this condoning mob mentality? And it doesn't really know. That's a problem too. Is the film is like as is tonally actually the tone's pretty consistent, but like um, philosophically all over the place with what it's trying to quote unquote say. Well, here's the thing: is that I think on revisit, time has been much kinder, even in just a year to Halloween Kills than I initially was on first. Cause I actually kind of like this movie when I revisited it for this podcast is because I kind of see again where the whole plan starting to come into play with like Will Patton's character, the, the chief, like you said, is that he, you know, is living in the shadow of this horrible thing that happened to him. And that becomes like the overarching theme for all of our main characters. It's all about living in the wake of either something that's happened to you or something that's happened to your bloodline or something that's happened to your town and how you deal with and move forward and process that frankly grief or trauma or whatever you want to call it. And like, that's the first kind of example of it is Will Patton's character, you know, basically accidentally killing his partner, shooting him, who's played by Jim fucking Cummings. It's so weird. And Jim Cummings is full on doing the Jim Cummings, like... Thunder Road. Yeah, Thunder Wo- Road. What's the werewolf movie? Wolf of Wolf. Uh, Wolf of Snow Hollow. Yes, yeah. Uh, like I, like, I like that one a lot. He, I like both of those yeah, movies a lot. Too. And he's really carved out, like his comedic persona fits perfectly with the Rough House guys because his movies are basically Jody Hill movies without Jody Hill. Uh, yeah, absolutely. You the know, Observe and Report kind of mentality. Yeah, like yeah. he's the prettier Danny McBride. Mm, like he's yeah. doing something. And his are even maybe even a little more acidic, like his characters that he plays. So like he kind of fits in. And I like that you see these kindred spirits kind coming together but like that whole backstory thing to where you actually flash back to Haddonfield 1978 you're like what the fuck are we doing here and then it's not until you get to ends that you can recontextualize a lot of these things that happen except for one one still feels like the 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 sore thumb that sticks out in the whole trilogy Two and three feel of a piece. Well, you know what it actually reminds me of? It's a very, and again, they were shot back to back. It's the Matrix and the Matrix Reloaded and Revolutions, where you feel the one is that's this opening film, and then Reloaded and Revolutions feel of a piece. Yeah. You know, you could see like when they're like, okay, this is what we're doing now. They had an idea they had, that they were building towards. Yeah. And, but it did not, for them, did not start in the Matrix. It started with Reloaded because they're like, they kind of, because so, like basically Neo becomes Jesus at the end of Reloaded. He's already like you know he's already the ultimate Jedi. Where do we go from there? Well, we're gonna start here and figure it out. Like they feel of a piece as well. Well, I also feel like one of the big things that gets lost in the conversation of these movies is that they were in production near simultaneously on the Righteous Gemstones second season, mm, yeah. and they were bouncing back and forth between writing and directing episodes of that for. HBO, and I think that's what makes these second and third movies more fit for a streamer like Peacock. Yeah. Because they feel like a streaming series. They feel like a prestige series because they're made by guys who are primarily experienced in television. 
working yeah. together. You know, like they made all the stoner comedies and everything. Uh, like Your Highness and whatever is the main one that sticks out with Pineapple Daniel Express. Yeah. Pineapple Express, exactly. But it's like the format that they seem to be operating off of, like with long term, like long term storytelling, is Righteous Gemstones, Vice Principles, yada yada yada. Well, that's a good point because and those are very much about a town, like exactly. The, the, you, the, a, a community, a community, a sense of place, history, um, hidden history. That right. Is, that is dug up. You know, you think about everything, even eastbound and down of like a guy know, returning home, returning home, but also the history of his father and his mother. Like the, the, the show uncovers more and right. more of like where, you know, where did Kenny come from and why is he the way that he is? Yeah. It's all peeling back the onion yes. layer by layer until you kind of find the core of these people. And that's and, gemstones. I mean, completely. Exactly. And that's honestly what this is. The, Halloween kills and Halloween ends are about is that it's peeling back the layers of Haddonfield though. Yeah. Because I know the one movie that uh, David Gordon Green has referenced when talking about Halloween kills in particular is Haskell Wexler's medium cool. Mm -hmm. Haskell Wexler being one of the great cinematographers of the seventies. He made this super weird movie with uh, Robert Forster that takes place during the riots at the democratic national convention. And what is that? 68. 68. I want to say, um, and how it becomes this microcosmic kind of view of this community in turmoil. That's what Halloween Kills is about. It's about how the violence that Michael Myers is inflicting on this town kind of ripples out like, uh, you know, when you throw a stone into a pond, not to get too corny, and how it riles all these people up because, like, the big climax in Kills has nothing to do with Michael Myers. It has everything to do with the townspeople lynching a uh, escaped Smith Grove uh, patient who's wrongfully targeted for the Myers mur murders and ends up killing himself, jumping off you know the roof of a building and splattering himself in front of the whole town. And they kind of all collectively realize like we did this. Like that's one of the that's the great message of Halloween Kills is how paranoia and fear and politics can kind of drive an entire community mad and gee, I wonder where the fuck we got that idea during the pandemic. Yeah. And totally agree where I'll push back is it's really ham fisted. Oh, it's sure. Really, I'm not uh, yeah, saying yeah, that I, it's yeah, good. Yeah. I'm just saying that it's there. It's there. It's obvious. It's ham fisted. I think my thing too, especially like them killing the, or uh, causing to uh, leading to his death. This other guy's like, they're like, that's Michael Myers. Like, dude, he looks nothing. He's this fat little like penguin dude. You know, and and everything too. And again, like it, it's my biggest issue is that that as far as these people know, only a few people have been killed, and so they're they're acting like they're like evil dies tonight. He's haunted this place for too long. I'm like, he's been gone for forty fucking years. Like you're again, they want to have their cake and eat it too. Of like having this this evil presence of Michael of two, three, four, five, six. Well, here's okay, and I'm gonna push back against your pushback. Is that I think part of the thing that does reveal itself as, again, this onion is peeled back uh, throughout the trilogy and, and watching them again all in order after Ends came out. Because I've now watched all of these movies in a row twice to try and get like a better macro view of like, what are we talking about here? Like, what are we doing with these three movies? 
And the one thing that I do keep coming back to is the idea of how different generations process uh, tragedy, trauma, you know, apply your own buzzword to it, to where like, you know, Allison and Miles and you have, and their buddies, like they all have those jokes in the, the first movie about like, oh, it's just a guy with a knife, you know, like to kids who have existed in the era of school shooters and school shooter drills and whatever, a guy with a knife isn't scary. He's just like this story that their parents talk about to where we zoom in a little more in Halloween Kills and we actually get Tommy Doyle. We actually get like, they make a point of bringing in all the survivors, including the original actress who played the nurse mm-hmm. um, from Halloween 1978. Who dies in H2O. Who dies in H2O. I love that opening scene a lot. Um, But like they bring her back too. Yeah, because she plays uh, the mom to Joseph Gordon-Levitt, right? No, she's she's the neighbor. Oh no! Yeah, you're yeah, right. The she's neighbor. just the nurse again. Okay, yeah. I'm I'm missing because she because ha- she one. has the evidence to where Lori is in her in her files. Oh, that's right. That's yeah, why yeah, Michael yeah. comes to kill her. So, which is also really weird, but we're not even going to get into that now. <laughs> um, but like, you zoom in here and you get the nurse from the original. You get Tommy uh, Doyle from the original, who's now played by Anthony Michael Hall. Yep, a Breakfast Club member. You get um, you get Robert Longstreet as Robert Longstreet as Lonnie. as Lonnie, the kid that Doctor Loomis tried to scare in two, and who gets a, another bit of retcon backstory because like he runs into Michael Myers in this. That's one. the dumbest one. Is like again when they're recounting what happened to these people, and they're like, and they're like, and and Lonnie who had a run in with Michael. It's like he saw him. Yeah, that's what happened. Is he saw Michael Myers? It's like but let's the, let's calm the fuck down. But I think. That, again, I don't want to push back against your pushback, but I will. I think that's sort of the point, is I think it's about the people who existed during that time period. It's the idea of, like, what happens when you're multiple generations removed and you deal with a different level of violence and tragedy on an everyday level to where, like, what happens to the way that they process it versus the people who are actually there to where like even just being there and like falling down on a pumpkin in front of Michael Myers because you were bullied by a bunch of dorks like that still left an imprint on you because you were there. You're a James Murphy song at that point. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like how that has haunted them for 40 years to where it's kind of been lost on these people that they've birthed in, in the wake. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it makes sense. I think it makes sense. Like definitely intellectually. I I don't know if it comes across. Well, because ends is that, That, and that's what we'll get to in the final segment of this is that ends is almost like that thesis writ large for two hours you know it's about what happens next what happens when all of this has occurred within two movies and has now violated two different generations maybe even three different generations of people inside of a town how do they sit with that and how does that actually infect and change the fabric of the town itself so like you can see the grand experiment in hindsight better than you can in real time yes absolutely Do you want to just get to ends now? Let's do it. All right.
we're back talking about Halloween Ends, the final installment in David Gordon Green's Halloween trilogy. Martin, this is a very controversial uh, installment thus far. How did you feel upon first viewing? Because I know I saw this before you did. I loved it. God, I love this movie so fucking much. Yeah, you, I mean, you primed me a little bit. You're like, I think I loved it. You saw it that morning or the night before. Yeah. And I said, ooh, interesting. And then I had my other friend Dan from work, he goes, I'm not going to tell you what I think. And I, I thought, oh, maybe he hates it. Like, he's not trying to ruin my experience. And I went in and I said, I am here to... And you also, you're like, look, it's a little bit Christine. It's a little bit Twin Peaks. So, like, I had the mindset of what to expect. But I think what really, like, got me and, like, kind of drew me in was the amazing, the, the long, cold open of of Corey and this babysitter thing. So I was like, I don't know where this is going. Like, I had an idea. So, like, he's going to, either Michael's going to come in and kill this kid or he's going to kill this kid. But I did not know. Like, you really, it's a, it's an actually surprising film. Like, there's a lot of, like, twists and turns where I was like, oh, shit. Well, because the first two movies take place in 2018. They're, again, the way that his first two films and his films in general kind of metabolize the original sequels is that it's the equivalent of Halloween one and Halloween two, the Carpenter and Rick Rosenthal movies. They all take place over the course of basically one night for the most part from the uh, third act of one uh, Halloween 2018 into Halloween kills. And then you get like the silver shamrock masks show up in Halloween kills. You get a little thorn cult trilogy in Halloween and Halloween kills with Dr. Satan and everything. Um, but here it feels like you're, you pick up four years later and it's just this new kid that we've never seen before. And it, it opens cause this is before Lori is even introduced with her book and everything. Yeah. Which we'll touch on in a second. Um, but yeah, you get this cold opener. You're here just kind of sitting there being like, what's happening here? Like, why are we with this kid? Why is he babysitting, uh, this other kid and this young kid, like it feels like something's off about him because his parents are rich. They drive this black, almost like convertible Mercedes. They're in this big ass house. That's obviously in the part of Haddonfield that like, and that's the, the one thing I want to touch on is that this is the first one that kind of gets into the class divides in Haddonfield. <clears throat> oh yeah. Like this house that we're in, in the beginning feels like the modern McMansion update on who, like this is who Lori Strode would be babysitting for mm. if she were alive in 2022, four years after the events of 2018. The kind of parents who can afford a babysitter. They can afford a babysitter. They have one coming over. They're like, ah, our kid's kind of weird. Like he's into Michael Myers. He's been having night terrors. So they sort of like set up that this kid is weird. And then the kid ends up just being shitty, like just kind of a little asshole. And at first I thought, oh, are we doing another like, Julian, David Gordon Green, Danny McBride, like kind of joke, like what happens? And it ends in a way that I did not see. Like the the cut to credits is one of the most shocking I've seen in forever. Yeah. No, it's, I was on board. Like, first off, I was just like, oh, cool. Like I'm being surprised here. And 
what I kept thinking of watching this movie, I just thought about, again, expectations, right? And I, we've talked before, we just talked about it today, how much Halloween means to both of us, especially the original film as a like formative for us as film fans, but also like, you know, perspective filmmakers, you know, of like, right. I not just want to watch, I want to make, like, I want to be able to create something like this. And what well, I, because the, the fact now too, that, I mean, we haven't 100% touched on is that you have three separate auteurs and at least one journeyman, maybe three. Yeah. That we really admire yeah. and have made minor Dwight Little. Yeah. Dwight Little is the one I was really going for that we've kind of gone to bat for on yeah. the podcast already. But like you have Carpenter, you have Zombie, and you have David Gordon Green now who are auteurs. Like, yeah. You watch their movies and you know that they belong to them. And then you have Dwight Little, you have Rick Rosenthal, and Steve Miner, all journeymen who have operated inside of like slasher and horror franchises that we really like. I mean, I just revisited Lake Placid for the first time that Minor directed, and that movie is great. I forgot how wonderful that movie was. It's hilarious. It's so... Everything Oliver Platt does in that, like, we could do a whole Lake Placid episode just based on his character. And you know what? I would. We could do a Gator movie. Ooh. Because we did did Sharks. We could do a Gator movie episode. I'm saying. We talk off mic. Okay. But, um, But, yeah, you're here, and, like... This feels like them being like, we're going to make, we're again metabolizing a sequel because it ends with Corey accidentally killing this kid and cuts to black and it's the Halloween 3 font for the credits. Oh, I I literally leapt out of my seat. And it was that you knew if you're a Halloween fan, you were like, oh shit, these are guys, auteurs who are like completely familiar with the franchise that they're operating in and the idiosyncrasies in specific that they they're operating with. And they're just like, we're doing this. We're doing something completely different. And that's what we get. I, I love that because I, I thought the same thing because, you know, from what I'd read ahead of time going in and what you told me and other friends had told me, you know, I saw it opening night, but I still was behind. Everyone had already seen it ahead of me. You know, everyone in my life. And I was like, when those credits started, I said, oh, you guys are just, you guys are fucking just like announcing that we're doing, and it's also the third of the series. We're doing Halloween three. We're, we're zagging. We're, yeah, we're completely zagging here. And what I, and we'll get into this more, but like one of the things I really, really love about this film is it's not just a tribute to Halloween, it is a tribute to, to Carpenter. Like you were saying, it's Christine, right? But it also feels like part of his Apocalypse trilogy. It feels very apocalyptic to you me. You texted this to me, and could you expand on that? Because I don't get the Apocalypse trilogy vibes at all, but I want to hear your take on this because I am intrigued by this. It sounds neat. So, I mean, um, and so Apocalypse trilogy, The Thing, uh, Prince of Darkness, and then... Which they're watching The Thing in the first like cold open scene. Exactly. And then Mansions, and then um, um, at the... In the mouth of mouth, madness. Mouth of mansions of madness. In the um, mansions of madness, I would also watch that. I was actually quoting Springsteen there. Mansions of madness with suicide machines. <laughs> um, but um, just the sense that there, there's an there's an uh, almost there's an apocalyptic energy to like what's going on. There's again the sense that like evil is not specific to one figure. Um, and that's why I think, especially with the, that trilogy, you have the sense of the thing is like the thing is many things. It is it is a disease, right? 
Prince of Darkness is this unknowable, everyone's infected by it. It's like science can't explain it or it tries to. And then, you know, um, the Mouth of Madness, full on the the kind of like plague mentality of of an author and like his vision. Yeah, what happens when you're ab- like able to evangelize evil to the point that it manifests in the real world? Yeah, exactly. And I think that this connects to that where we, what you kept saying or we're talking about the other film is like the idea that like evil is bleeding out into the city, into this town. It's affecting everybody. And it's doing that. And it's very, I mean, you mentioned this before I even saw it. You're like, it's a little bit it. It's a lot bit it. Yeah. It, this mean, is it's dairy. dairy. It's straight up fucking dairy. Well, the scene, the scene where I literally was just like, oh my God, they're fucking doing it. Is when they, they, they push him off the bridge. They push him off the bridge. I said, this is the scene. And he gets the- sucked in by like Michael. <laughs> My. Okay. So we'll just get into it. Corey Cunningham is the kid from, you know, he's the babysitter in the, the cold, open and then we catch up with Lori who's now moved on four years later she's writing like this weird like self-help memoir thing about yeah. her being a victim and surviving which it's a little that's ham-fisted too but yeah I also want to get in I don't know how much of that isn't parody like it feels mm. like them taking the piss in the very David Gordon Green and Danny McBride because of their hyper cynical, hyper acidic, like comedies like Eastbound and Down and Vice Principals in particular and Righteous Gemstones, frankly, is the idea that like we've idealized these figures who like take these horrible, devastating events that happen in their life and more or less turn them into like EPUB like sensations. Like what happens if like Laurie Strode just becomes this woman who's more or less like a glorified mommy blogger and like shoots this out into the universe. There's a little bit of that to me. Now do how much of that do I think is intended or not? I don't know, but it might be there because the thing about this movie is, is we veer into full, I hate calling things Lynchian, but David Lynch territory to where like all of the performances are super arch and melodramatic you have Twin Peaks style music. You have romance, love affairs. Like it's, it just, it's explodes to where the people of Haddonfield are even more so the, like the protagonists of this than they ever were before. Yeah. It's, it's this big, like ensemble drama about how like people have moved on past Michael Myers in Haddonfield. We finally gotten to the point to where he was just the nine 11 of that town. And that's, what happened and how do you live in the wake of that? And like, it's pretty gnarly how it changes it because it almost feels like the way when you get into the eighties section of, of it and how King talks about dairy and how the evil is manifested. Cause one of the big ideas in, in the book, it that the movies kind of tossed to the side is the idea that the evil doesn't just manifest as Pennywise, which that's the Michael Myers here. He's yeah. Pennywise. So like it doesn't just manifest that way is that it actually seeps up through the soil and the ground and kind of gets into the people and their ideas and beliefs and everything. Because you had like, what was it? The Knights of Dairy or whatever, were basically like the, the KKK standings yeah. that, that, that burned down the whole the... black spot massacre yep. the jet, the black club. Um, you have like in the 80s section, which I was getting to like, because King writes this during kind of the beginnings of the AIDS pandemic and how like that seeped into to dairy. 
um, because you have like AIDS is a gay plague for faggots and stuff like spray painted on the sewer walls and stuff. And like, it was about how like our belief structure can be like infiltrated by evil. And I think that's sort of happening in Derry. It's about how like this town is now rotting away to where even the kids that we used to think were nerds, the band kids become the bullies and like there's homeless dudes that are like just kind of camping out by like the sewers and are like listening almost to hear like if Myers finally comes out because that's their like that reminded me of Prince of Darkness the most of like yeah. Alice Cooper playing the homeless guy yeah. like listening to the call of Satan maybe and then but but like it feels like Dairy has moved on, but like they're always living with this nasty, like acid of Michael Myers, like in their bellies. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's a it's a perfect comparison. I mean, King even tweeted about how much he liked the film, right? And I'm like, well, no fucking surprise. It's a tribute to it, but also to Christine. I mean, and you have it's so Christine, you know, and and um, you you were the one who told me right that like, or someone told me that like straight up like. He pitched, he's like, I want to do Christine. Yeah, Christine was a, he had, somebody, a buddy of ours, Brett Arnold, pointed out an interview to me from about a year ago, like, leading up, and I believe during production, where he was like, the, you know, Halloween isn't the only Carpenter movie that we're referencing, like, I'm a big Christine fan, and that's going to be, like, a big plot point kind of moving forward, or, like, a big influence moving forward, and you can feel that here because... This becomes about, like, uh, even the to the last name Cunningham, like, our protagonist is a guy who finds love but also finds a reason to live in, in like, evil. Like, only instead of an infected car. He, he finds a confidence he, in evil. He finds a confidence in evil in Michael Myers in, in the sewers after he's thrown over the edge of the bridge uh, by a bunch of band nerds. Yeah, because he's it, it, and just and just the imagery too. I mean, straight up, like he works in a fucking like chop shop with his his stepfather, right? Right. And which is you know full. I think of Darnell. I just watched because like before I went to see the movie, you're like it's very Christine. So I watched Christine right before I went to see Halloween Ends, which was a perfect double feature. Well, his the introduction of his dad uh, confused me. On the first, I thought it was viewing. his boss. Cause yeah, I thought it was his it's boss, his and they were trying to like. I thought they were introducing like a straight up like Robert Prosky like proxy. They're like that's who he Me was too. gonna play, uh, to our kind of like damaged protagonist the whole time. But then he shows up at dinner later when they're all he's having you know dinner with his mom and everything, and I'm like, is that his dad? And then it became oh, it's his stepdad. And his stepdad, we should also comment, has great taste in movies that he's watching Hard Target at one point. It's awesome. What a what a guy. At work. At work. I mean, what else will you do in the junkyard? But, like, he is the Robert Prosky character in this, the guy who's, you know, taking the nerd under his wing and even gifts him. Like, we're in Christine, he, he gifts, you know, Arnie the space to actually work on the car inside of his garage here, you know, uh, our man is actually working in the, the junkyard itself and he gives him the motorcycle, which is like his first kind of freeing yes. incident, let's say, because Corey Cunningham has been more or less canceled by H- Haddonfield. Cause that's the other thing I want to get into how this is kind of like their cancel culture Halloween movie and about how like 
the whole town turned against him. He wasn't convicted of murder or aggravated manslaughter, which I think was the actual mm-hmm. charge. Um, or accidental man- manslaughter, I believe it was, is that he gets off, but the whole town turns against him, and he's always just that guy who kills a, a kid. He's a pariah. He's haunted by it for the rest of his life. He had, like, I think, like, he was accepted to go to engineering school in the intro, and then I guess that school dropped him. I was sort of lost on that plot He point. was applying, he said, but I think his whole life was... Well, either way, yeah. yeah. It, his whole he- life was ahead of him, it and then this up. thing happens, and the town cancels him to where now he's working in a junkyard with his stepdad, and the great moment is when he gets gifted this shit-ass motorcycle. But then he meets Allison, uh, Jamie Lee's granddaughter, and, like, man... I love this shit because this is just like he it's wild it, at heart. It's wild at heart. It's just this great. It, it reminds me of river's edge too, a movie you Ooh. showed me to where it's just about these wandering lost teenagers who are disillusioned with the community that, that they currently exist in. And like he infects, you know, Allison as well to become like, cause she hates it because like everybody's turned against Lori they blame her for like the Myers rampage because he was fixated on her. Which is kind of a stretch, um, but, but yeah, it's a little bit of a stretch, but you could see it again. It's, right. it's them dealing with the whole idea of like, what if we applied this unfounded rumor against this person or like just apply guilt in some way, like they're to blame. Like there's no rationale that actually sticks behind it, but it's the thinking. You know, and it's the way that honestly we do, we do deal with some people these days to where it's almost like, well, my friend or a friend of a friend said they did this or that or whatever. So like they're canceled now. And you're like, okay, but what proof do you have that they actually did there? Or like, what's the logic that you're following? And it isn't there. It's just that person's bad. Get rid of them. And that's what happens to both Corey and Lori. And then by proxy, Allison, because she's the daughter or granddaughter of, of Lori Strode, despite her mom being killed in the events of Halloween Kills, she's kind of on the outskirts too. And like the whole idea is what if these two came together and like he in like a very badland sort of way oh, yeah. is like, what if we say fuck society, fuck Haddonfield, let's burn it all to the ground. And that is the story moving forward. And oh, Like, it was almost like I was watching this, and like you said, like, the intro hooked me, then it kept going, and I kind of got, like, hypnotized by it, and then I realized that's where we were doing with it, and I was like, oh my god, they're just like, fuck all of this, like, what happens when trauma is passed down through actual generations and how they process it, and then it's just go and turn that into, like the romantic Halloween and just run with it on like an elemental level. I was like, yep, you made a movie just for me. That's great. The moment where I was just like, Oh shit. I'm like, so in is just the motors, the first motorcycle scene. And, and, and you, and it's all full, the motorcycle. It's stuff full on great. lost highway. You see the, like the, the road strips and the music. It's that boy Hartshire song, which I've been listening on repeat. Um, that, that dark wave, amazing music. So great. And of course, and just the straight up the, the, Carpenter and his son and their and uh, their other collaborator is just really really amazing and kind of weirder in this one too. But I think I like I like the relationship so much between Allison and Corey because it's like they really get into the nuances too of what it is to be a person with a dark past. Is she's like I'm a sur-, he's like well you're a survivor you're a hero I'm, I'm a, a killer. killer. 
Yeah. And it changes it. And she's, and she's like, well, but in my mind, we're not different. We're, we're both broken people because all that, all that matters is how people basically look at us. And she's in my mind, I'm alone. You're alone. Let's be together, you know? And it's this kind of beautiful thing because it is like, it, it actually balances it pretty well. Like the, the, there's some clunkiness, obviously, in this movie still. Um, but I think that's actually a feature and not a bug, though. No, I would. I, yeah, you know me. Like the messier a movie is, the more I'm kind of into it. And like I like the messiness of this movie. I like the arch performances. Like the the actress who plays Corey's mom is technically terrible, but I like her in almost like a Cirkian. Oh yeah. Or like even John Waters, like polyester sort of way to where like, she's so big and is almost playing like New York Jewish helicopter mother. And you're like, but you're in Haddonfield. Like what's going Like nobody else is doing what you're doing, like accent wise or anything else. But it just got me so much more into this movie, just operating on its own wavelength. It's like watching those super stilted kind of arch performances in the, opening act of blue velvet for the first time you're like why is everybody doing this why are they talking like that what are we doing and then you realize it's like it's literally green setting up the reality he wants his movie to exist in and it's sort of perfect in my mind i i love it because it you know in the same way he kind of uh in mulholland drive the first half exactly stilted kind of like fantasy land and then reality well, and all the stuff with her parents, too, how it feels like it's just beamed in from a different movie. Yes, yeah. And you have, you know, I, I really like uh, the kind of, like, uh, melodramatic view of this because it also makes a lot of sense when people say what, quote-unquote, bad dialogue is, right? Because if you're not on the wavelength of this film and you hear some of these lines, you're going to be like, what the fuck was that, right? But if you're, if you're tuned in, this is... This is like basically saying you just don't get it, but I think some people just don't get it. Like I don't, I don't think they're tuned in with what Gordon Green is doing. I also it, don't think that's wrong. No, like the yeah. thing is, it's like sometimes you're just not gonna get it. Like there are movies yeah, that people okay. love that I don't tune into one hundred percent. And like, man, I got into this big Twitter spat yesterday with a rather large name in the, the horror community, which I'm not going to smear here, but I will say that I think you were being a little bitch about it, but like, um, to where all of a sudden, like people have gravitated towards Halloween two in like a revisionist sort of sense. Zombies. Since, yeah. Since they've hated Halloween ends. And now I've seen all these people be like, you know what? Halloween two, I think is like, one of the best sequels of not the best Halloween movie of the last 24 years. And then you're like, where were you the whole fucking time? This movie is out. I guarantee you when that first came out, you fucking hated it. And in 10 years, we're going to say the same shit about this one. Well, it's because you weren't operating on that movie's wavelength. That was my biggest problem with people. And it's the thing that I even argued with you on our Halloween two um, deal breakers episode is that, Zombie is setting up a specific vibe and a specific wavelength. And if you're not locked in on it, it is all going to seem stupid. Like all of his, because like David Gordon Green's overarching trilogy is doing kind of the same thing thematically that Rob Zombie did in two hours in Halloween too. It's all about trauma. It's all about people like that's all of the Lori and, um, 
Danielle Harris stuff yeah. with Brad Dourif and the everything. Stuff, yeah. It's all these people living in the wake of what happened in the first Rob Zombie movie. Like he just does it as one film as opposed to a trilogy. But if you if you weren't like totally locked into his weird dream logic, the the Suspiria and Giallo homages, the crazy industrial like Tyler Bates music, those uh like the ghost visions of his mom, all the dorm room psychia, like psychology and Nietzschean shit and whatever. And like, if you, that was all super dumb, if you were like, I'm just watching a movie, I'm not watching a Rob Zombie movie, or I'm not picking up on what he's putting down. And I feel like that's why people rejected that movie initially. And now they're coming back and trying to reclaim it when you know, like, let's face it, people hate that fucking movie. And they've hated it for years up until Halloween Ends came out. And now Halloween Ends is the new movie that operates on its own wavelength. And people are going back and reevaluating and trying to be like, oh shit, I always liked Rob Zombie. Like he was doing this thing way before David Gordon Green. You're like, you didn't fucking like that movie. You don't like this movie either. It's because like it came at you from fucking left field and you weren't ready for it and you're being a little bitch about it. Like now, like if you tune into either one of these films, like they're doing something totally different and unique and that's what we should look to Halloween movies for because as we discussed before, this movie has taken on so many different forms. This franchise has that like, even though Carpenter like failed at being or like bringing it into like the anthology territory in an official sense, like he wanted to do, it's become its own anthology where you can break it up into all these different segments and be like, okay, the first two are doing this. Three is doing this four, five, and six are doing this. You know, the, the Miramax, you know, H2O and resurrection are doing this zombies doing this and now david gordon green's doing this it's its own it's still an anthology it's the most malleable horror franchise of all time and people are now trying to to praise one but like waving off the other and it's like your your problem with both is the same thing but you're just pretending now and it's like it's cool that you like it but don't be don't, don't fucking make shit up now dude yeah no it's Sorry for the long rant. Oh, not at all. Um, it, it feels, again, using the credits from Halloween 3, is like they're very aware of what they're doing, and they're very aware they're going to piss off a huge part of the population. Like, if not all of them. Yeah, they knew that. Like, they knew that making this movie, and I kind of love that about it. I'm like, oh, they didn't give a shit. They actually were, like, pushing it, but they're also commenting on Garen fucking Teed in 10 years, you're going to call this a masterpiece. Garen Teed. It's the fire walk with me of the Halloween franchise. It's the movie that David Lynch made in 1992 with Twin Peaks that got booed out of fucking can. No Twin Peaks fan knew what to do with it. And now is seen like, you know, 20 plus years or 30 years later now is hailed as a masterpiece and on criteria. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, it's kind of amazing. And I think they're, they're purposely making that film of like, they're daring us not to like it. They're daring us to not get in the wavelength, but like, you know, I, again, I think about um, expectation, yeah. you know, and I was talking to a friend at work who's seen it as well. I said, when it comes to a franchise like this that I love, I already have Halloween. I already have Halloween 2. I have Halloween 4. I have a lot of movies that I adore. I don't need that again. Right. I For them, it's like, dude, play in the sandbox, man. Like, the older I get, I'm like, go fucking nuts because I'm so tired 
with the mediocrity of IP filmmaking that it blows me. I, I hate it. The fact that like I watched Hellraiser, which is not a terrible movie, but it's so muh. It's so fucking muh and safe and and neutered and 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 it does not under it. Not only does it not understand the original idea, it does not do anything new. Well, it doesn't take any chance. There's no voice to it, you know. And we talk about how these properties kind of exist in the times and the, the filmmaking modes that people are operating within. And Hellraiser feels like somebody approximating the idea of Hellraiser as the, this story about trauma to where David Gordon Green and them are actually interested in that and the generational kind of passing of trauma and everything. They just took three movies to actually do it. And it's the difference between somebody having an actual vision for it and somebody trying to be like, well, I think this is what audiences want now. And that sucks to say about David Bruckner because like, I really love a yeah. lot of his movies, but like Hellraiser just feels like the studio approximation of what would be po like popular now. Well, all the problems are in the script, which is not him. I mean, like yeah. that. Not to get on to Hellraiser, but like it's still a well-directed film. Like he he's gonna have a no, career. That's great. Yeah, sure. You know, but except for the Cenobites. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um. But for help, you know, speaking of Halloween, though. Um. Speaking of approximations, or not approximations. But speaking of like kind of, um, pulling elements from the, the sequels and like you know doing their version of it. One of my favorite moments in Halloween ends is I think a clear reference to a scene from Halloween 2 from 81. So in 81 and there we talked before they are Halloween 2 fans. Oh like, yeah. Because all this all the back alley stuff is like of walking around Haddonfield in part 1 and in kills is straight up that ver like all the the whole cold opening of Halloween kills like the alleyway is them redoing that amazing opening of. Well, they do it in Halloween 2018 too, to where like it's all about him yeah, walking that... around the trick or treaters in Haddonfield and stuff. That murder that we described, the crucifixion, that's basically their update on the cold opener Halloween too, where he's just sneaking around the houses and everything. Dude, he's straight up in Halloween Kills. Is they he comes in on this woman and kills her off screen goes to grab the knife and it's next to a big piece of ham, which is from Halloween too. Right. It's the old woman. And they literally go into that detail of like, Oh no, we're doing, this isn't just for fans. It's us saying we're like you said, a remix of, of the elements, but there's the moment in Halloween two in 81 when they're um, before Michael shows up at the, at the hospital and they're all sitting in like the break room. And it's like the kind of like more prissy nurse. Who's like Christian, uh, Leo, um, Rossi, and then Lance Guest, right? And he's doing the whole amazing grace, come sit on my face, you know, that whole thing. And she's getting offended. And yeah, she which we should note that had they all survived the events of Halloween 2, that whole staff probably would have been fired the next day. Oh, worst hospital staff ever. The worst. Yeah, those babies would... I mean, what happened to the fucking babies? They're all there while Michael's killing people. Like, no one's Still there, them. probably. They're still there. They're just growing old. Um, but... There's, she says that amazing, she, they're talking and she said, um, well, yesterday my friend saw him walking around in the field behind the old drive-in. Julie said he looked so creepy. And then Leo's like, Julie's full of shit. And she's like, what? He goes, he didn't get out till last night. You know, but it was this moment of like her telling this creepy, again, the, the legend idea of like the way it spreads, urban legend, idea of like, what a creepy image you have in your mind of just Michael Myers walking in a field in the afternoon behind a fucking, um, you know, drive-in. Like, what a perfect image, right? And 
in the next, and then Halloween ends, they're at, they're playing at the pool hall or the bar where Lindsay works. They're talking to the dad of the dead kid from the beginning about Corey. He goes, Corey's a good kid. And I'm driving around last week and I see him and he looks me in the eye. I just see him walking and he looks me in the eye and it wasn't Corey. I think that was a reference to the idea. He's telling the story now about when, cause it's a flashback of like when I saw Corey, this idea of like, the way the stories permeate this town and like the legends. And it's like, I think that his version of what he saw is not the way it happened. They're playing with that too, of the way that like stories take on shape and how legends take on shape as well. And again, the idea of cancel culture of like this, this way they've painted Corey in a certain way or Lori in a certain way. It's like not even who they are in reality. It's like their version of that. Does that make sense? Yeah. Well, the other movie that this reminded me of that does a similar thing that you're describing is Place Beyond the Pines, which yeah. I know that oh, yeah. we kind of go back and forth on with how much like I like it versus you and a lot of other people too. But like, I think that that is a single movie epic that is doing something very similar to what David Gordon Green is doing with his Halloween movies. Is that again, it's about legacy and how crimes and like possible like traits and everything are passed down through generations and how generations have to live in the wake of the people who came before them. And like place beyond the pines is after something much more specific than what these Halloween movies are. But like they both have the same rustic Gothic tone that is all about how small town communities mythologize the people who Mm -hmm. live in them mythologize the things that happened in the past and how maybe they grow bigger than they actually were to where like in Halloween ends, like we've lived through now Halloween and Halloween kills. So we even have our own memories as an audience of them. So like we through and not to get too pretentious with this, but we can process our own emotions along with the characters on screen of being like, well, if I lived in Haddonfield, like how would I deal with it? Would I try and move on with my life and, and be a good person and write a book about it? Like Lori, would I kind of shrivel away a little bit and just toil and, and try to work and be a good person? Like Allison, would I maybe embrace a certain strain of darkness like Corey does? Like, I think it, it puts a lot more to you or holds up a, a mirror to you as a viewer, a lot more than maybe the movies being given credit for. I think that's fair. Also, while we're, while we're talking, it kind of reminds me similarly of going from dark Knight to dark Knight rises where you have like the earth shattering character shattering events of dark Knight for the town, but also for like Bruce Wayne and, you know, and rises while it has its problems is also about reckoning with the aftermath. Of well, like it's how, about Gotham. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's like, how do you go on, you know, and how, do, how are all these people reckoning with the aftermath of what the Joker did, you know, and the lies you have to tell to go on. Exactly. You know, it's, so it's like, it's also dealing with a very similar, you know, I always thought that the third movie should have been called Gotham. Like for real, it's like, you know, dark Batman, dark Knight, Gotham. And just Instead, like, we got a shitty TV series. Oh, God. That's a rough one. Yeah. Well, sort of like Dark Knight Rises, too. The Batman parts 
are sort of the worst part of Dark Knight Rises. <laughs> Agreed. And the, the worst parts of Halloween Ends might be the actual Michael Myers stuff, or at least the stuff that they feel the least interested in, to where Nolan feels more into Bruce Wayne falling into the pit and being reborn and, and Gotham existing in the aftermath of like you know the Dark Knight and Batman Begins, like what came before. Like... David Gordon Green and Danny McBride seem more interested in the town than Michael Myers and Lori again, because Lori isn't really present. She's present more than Michael Myers is, but Michael Myers is not in this movie, like hardly at all. And when he is, he's presented as like this dormant malevolent force for a lot of it. That is even now perhaps sleeping so soundly that like, He's just part of the architecture because you see his face in oh, like yeah. concrete pieces and everything. Awesome. Like it, again, he's going for a much more like it or Twin Peaks vibe here to where like does the ancient evil of Bob or like what Bob represents, like does that live in the town or does that live in the people? It seems yeah. like Lynch believes it lives in the town. And it's been and passed so, to and Derry to Leland is the same and, yeah. thing to where like it's in like the actual infrastructure of of dairy itself like pennywise is just this ancient thing that awakens again every 40 years kind of like michael mm-hmm. to where he it comes back every tw- yeah, 27 years yeah, yeah oh that's yeah. right 27 in, in it but again like decades later it comes to feed or prey upon the weak in that town and like it's pretty obvious what green's after now, whether or not, again, you're on the movie's wavelength is kind of up to you and your, your individual sensibilities. But for me, this movie fucking ripped. Yeah. And and again, to your point, like that's where the film probably stumbles the most is trying to shoehorn in the final showdown between Lori and Michael. It doesn't build to that. We already had it in the, in 2018. That's the problem too. We already had that. And my friend put it the other day. He's like, dude, he's like, people were like, I wanted the final showdown. It's like, you already fucking had it in 2018. Well, it's sort of the inverse of Halloween 2018, right? To where we talked about with Halloween 2018 was that you see the rough house vision peeking through the studio notes here. You have the rough house vision. Only the studio notes start peeking through and that where they peek through the most is the last, like let's say 15, 20 minutes where it just becomes Lori and Michael again, where you can feel uh, David Gordon green and Danny McBride kind of straining to be like, no, it's a metaphor. Like Michael is her, like they're actually embracing what they talked about with the first one of like, this is her finally showing down with the ultimate boogeyman that's always haunted her for her whole life like they give it to you for 15 20 minutes but it also feels like jason blum and universal and everybody being like at some point that's great you guys have made us a lot of money and we're letting you make two and three but at some point in three you can do whatever you want but michael's got to come back and fuck some shit up otherwise like the people are gonna be mad Yep, and they're still mad, and <laughs> they're still very pissed off. Well, and it, but then you, after that scene, you have the kind of final um, procession of of the everyone coming back and like walking with the they they strap Michael's body to the top of this fucking car, which feels very roughhouse, like, and then bringing it out to the junkyard and full on just destroying his body in this giant metal crusher, this car crusher. And what I really like about that scene is that it reminded me a lot of Candyman, of you know, because because Candyman burning the effigy, burning the effigy, but also like the idea that like the way that a story can haunt 
the story and a story and and an urban legend can haunt a place is that we have to pull it out and show it. Like that's kind of the point of that. It's like, no, no, no. Michael's not a legend anymore. We're going to put this body on this car and we're all going to watch him die. And it's different from the mob energy of kills. This is more like, this almost has a feeling of like, something like the lottery or like a kind of like classic, like almost like, Salem witch trials, but like the, not not the bad side, but more the of a Northmen. side of like or the Northmen. Yeah, it's like we Old are Norse or Greek mythology or whatever that ended with funeral pyres. Yeah, it's like we are, and it's like we are going to say goodbye to this this monster, you know. And also, it's but it's somber too, you know. It's, it's this so kind, sad. It's, the it's, whole movie. I think that's the other thing that where people have rejected this movie is that where every the other two are actually going for like scary slasher. And violent slasher, almost like body count movie in the second film with Halloween Kills. Like, this movie is just sad. Oh, it's, it's it's just oh. about, it's almost straight tragedy the whole time and, like, heartbreaking. Well, I mean, again, back to, you know, David Gordon Green, like Snow Angels, you have the idea of these two lost, you have the, what Marissa Tomei, or no, Kate Beckinsale and... Uh, Michael Sam and, Rockwell and, or Michael and the, the kid. Oh yeah. These, these lost characters in a, in a, in a kind of dead end town or all the real girls. Yeah. Who this, find, yeah, this is, the, this is the movie that if you were a David Gordon green fan beyond like the stoner comedies and stuff he did, if you watch George Washington, if you watch all the real girls, if you watch snow angels, hell, if you even watch like Prince avalanche or Joe, Joe's the other one that you can feel a lot of the DNA of like these people existing on the fringes of society and everything. If you were into those movies, this is the Halloween movie you've been waiting for where like you only got glimpses of David Gordon green and Halloween and Halloween kills with Halloween ends. You get the guy, who made all the real girls and snow angels and Joe like that's this movie whether again whether or not you're on board with it that's on you but like this is the movie I've wanted the whole fucking time yeah I mean I complained the whole time I said dude like these aren't David Gordon Green movies the first two I was like if they, they feel they feel like um voiceless you know yeah they feel very voiceless and I'm like, man, where where is he because I even like he has his voice and like his stuff he does with Rough House you know with the shows like even through his comedy, there's this like very specific view of the world, even the way he shoots stuff. And this felt like, wow, this is actually him doing his thing. And I agree. It is fucking dreary. And I love that shit. I, yeah, this just like really clicked with me. And again, it's like ballsy and it's like, it's doing something crazy with a franchise that I love. And I'm just going to try to get ahead of the curve here and be like, you're all going to call it a masterpiece in 10 years. Garen, I'll put fucking, we'll put money on right now. Yeah. I'll probably be dead, but sure. 10 years. I hope you're not. (laughs) But Martin, this has been great. We're on the right side of history as we always are. Um, Feels good to be right. I know. (laughs) You know, it feels good to be me. God damn it. But what are we doing next here? Dude, I have no idea, actually. This is the first time in a long time where, we don't, where we're not really sure. You know what? That I'm on feels, the same page. But it's good, though. It feels freeing. Yeah. All you'll know is that it's horror-related because we're still in the month of October. Um, there might be a slight delay in the next episode because I am traveling to uh, Phoenixville, Pennsylvania again to see the Exhumed 24-hour horror marathon. But when I get back... You better believe we've got a little more spooky season content for you at Secret Handshake. So stay tuned. See you then.
seasons don't fear the reaper, nor do the wind the summer. 